Well, it's Communion Sunday, and I want to take our time this morning to open the Word of God together, so I'll ask you to open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. And I just want to read for us this account in verses 1 through 8, and then begin to look at it together as we analyze really our own self when it comes to worship. John says this, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him supper there. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we ask you to tend to us. We need your guidance. We need your illumination. We need your understanding. We thank you that your word is true, that it is authoritative, and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart, that it is written here for us that we might learn of you, that we might learn of your great nature and character, that we might learn about ourselves so that we might be changed. So use your word in that way. Accomplish it. Don't allow it as you have promised to return void. For we know it will accomplish all that you set forth to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, now in my 57th year of life, I have spent most of my breathing life somewhere in the church. I grew up in a home where my father was saved when I was five years old, and I used to go to church with them even prior to that. So I have been in the church probably 53 years of my entire 57 years of life. And I grew up under at least hearing and hearing the teaching of, and in our own home, my father and mother did as best as they could as new believers to bring us under the tutelage of the Word of God when I was a young child. And along with that privilege, I've also had the opportunity as my father and our family moved around a bit to visit and be a part of various different churches And with that, God has allowed me to see firsthand the living out of what some might call modern-day Christianity, Christianity that we see happening in the evangelical world, at least for me over the last 50-plus years. Christianity, as it is explained and lived by many of our evangelicals, and particularly many in the world today, is not a Christianity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christianity that oftentimes we see in our day is no longer the exclusive reality of those who believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. It is rather defined with inclusiveness to all those who simply call themselves Christian. We see that in the ecumenism of our day in the world in which we live with religions across the globe that now are linking arms under the guise that we're all headed to the same place. We're all after the same thing. We're all worshiping the same God, regardless of what you call that God. It's very inclusive and we all are labeled Christians. In fact, even when I was going to be married to my wife. I wasn't even saved then. And she told her mother, what religion is he? And she said, well, he's a Christian. 
because that's what I claimed, even though at that time I didn't know Christ. And her mom said to her, well, everyone's a Christian. What religion is he? It's that mentality. It's that idea. It's this idea that anyone who is part of any kind of church is Christian, even though the scriptures tell us that we will be known, the Christian is to be known by their fruit. They're to be known by what it shows on the outside, what we bear in our lives. And it seems today that just the word Christian will pass for any acceptance as enough to be labeled Christianity. Rather than seeing any kind of fruit, In fact, in our day, you can just claim to know Christ, attach yourself to some kind of movement, and in most places, that's good enough to be labeled as a follower of Christ. That's not biblical Christianity. So we ask the question, what what in the world has happened? What has happened to biblical Christianity? Whatever happened to to Christians being those who live as lights in a dark place in this perverse and crooked generation in which we live among whom we appear as lights, as Philippians says, holding fast the word of truth. Whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to the seriousness of our duty as Christians, as true Christians, to actually worship Christ simply because He's worthy of worship rather than worshiping Him when it fits my schedule, when it's convenient for me, when it feels good in my life. I wonder, does it mean anything anymore to the professing when God says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world? Does it really mean anything? Do those words have any weight at all, it seems, in the church anymore? We know well what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He said, I urge you therefore, brethren. Paul had a, had a constant longing upon his heart to, to motivate, to push along, to encourage the Christian. Paul, what is it? What is it you're so urgent about that we that you would use such strong language, that you would use such motivating coach-like locker room language, if you will, as a direction and an exhortation to the professing believer? Why does even a professing believer need to have such strong encouragement? Why, Paul, would you say that? The answer Paul gives is, he says, by the mercies of God. In other words, because God has been so merciful to you in offering to you a way through Jesus Christ, whereby which you are reconciled to God, in order that you might be able to do what He created you to do, which is what? Worship Him with a pure heart. In other words, because of God's salvation through Christ, Paul says, I urge you strongly in Romans chapter 12, I urge you strongly to offer your bodies, which is the context of all of life, not just this physical animated reality here, but all of life, all the milieu of life, everything I do, no matter what the time, no matter what the day, all of life, you offer yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Set apart. You're living, you're active, you're moving, you're movement, and yet it's a set-apart reality. Why? Paul says it because this is your reasonable service of worship. This isn't the pinnacle. This isn't the, the top of the heap when it comes to Christianity. This is the very starting point. This is the very place where you are to live constantly because you've been saved, because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. This is your reasonable service. I think about that. In answer to the question, why? Why is it happening in the evangelical church the way it seems to be going that 
someone who can just say, I believe Jesus, but never have a life that reflects any of service to Christ in any kind of way will be accepted as a Christian. The reason that so many who profess to know Christ do not live in such a way as if Christ has affected their lives, as if there's any fruit coming out of their life in any kind of way, is either because they do not know Christ, even though they profess Christ, or like we learned in 2 Peter, they don't understand what they've been forgiven. They don't understand what salvation has done in reconciling them to God. And so it's either because of a, of a no belief, no real belief, they're not saved at all, even though they've attached themselves to some kind of religious movement, calling themselves all along that they're Christians, but in fact, they're not Christians at all. They, they, they're deceived in their belief. They're like the Pharisees who have attached themselves to God. And yet God says, away from me with your sacrifices. Or it's because of self-imposed ignorance. Self-imposed ignorance. Just plain indifference. Just plain indifference to him. They've they've created in their in their life. They're they're victims of themselves, if you will. They're they're victims of a self-imposed ignorance. It's not because they're 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 somebody living away from the truth. It's not because they don't have access to the truth in some kind of way. It's not because there's no sense in which God is available and you can learn about God. They have multiple scriptures. They they have them on their electronic devices. They have them in their hands sometimes during the week. And yet it's a self-imposed ignorance. There's no application. There's no study. There's no putting it into practice. What we need in evangelicalism in our day is a fresh look at what worship is and what it isn't. And I, I believe we get a glimpse of this in John chapter 12. I'll just give you an, an, a quick outline, just two simple points this morning for our time, and that is the contrast between true worshipers and false worshipers. This is it. True worshipers and false worshipers. That's all I want us to see today. That's all I want us to look at in light of our own life. Let the Scriptures divide down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Allow it to do what God sets it out to do. How are we to know if we are true worshipers? When I say worship, I don't mean an activity per se in and of itself. I don't want us to only think of us here this morning in this building as if we are the ones who are worshiping and anybody who's not here is not worshiping. That may or may not be the case. We could be here this morning and not be worshiping. What we're talking about is a heart issue, an issue of the heart that reflects itself, yes, in our lives, in the outworking. The worship is really an issue of our entire life. Let's begin to look at this then in the character of these individuals that we see here in our text. True worshipers. True worshipers. Look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. I'll just stop us right there because it, it seems rather mundane. Seems like an everyday event. It certainly isn't a, a church service. There's no church service taking place here. This isn't a synagogue. But there is a whole lot of worship happening even in this place. You remember when we studied through the Gospel of John, just in the previous chapter, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's not something we might just see today. It's interesting when you read verse 1 and it mentions whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Sometimes we just pass by that so quickly that we don't think about the reality of that. This is not someone who's heart stopped because of some medical condition and Jesus rushes in with cardiopulmonary resuscitation and he comes back and he takes his breath and all things are well. 
This is not that at all. This is, this is Christ going to the cemetery. This is Christ walking to the place where Lazarus was buried and had been buried four days ago and calling the very name of Lazarus. It's as if Jesus walks down here into the middle of town and reads the name on the tombstone and says, come forth. And the person walks out, brushes the dirt off. It's that kind of resurrection. It's not some simple thing. Is it any wonder that the resurrection of Lazarus made the unbelieving leaders of the day, the rejecting Pharisees of the day, extremely worried about their own popularity when it came to the crowds? In fact, if it was a law court and the defense attorney star witness was the guy who walks in the back room who everyone knows had been actually dead four days ago, their case is going to be over pretty quick. This is the reality. And the chief priests knew that. And that's why they begin to plot against Jesus Christ. Their popularity, their fame, their whatever served them was going away or would go away quickly. Unless they got rid of Jesus, the perpetrator of their very problem, the problem is going to continue. And so the Roman appointed high priest, as we understand from chapter 11, gives a prophecy, a clear prophecy about the coming death of Jesus Christ. And it's from that day on that they plot to kill Jesus. So if there was a a top 10 list of the most wanted on the chief priest lists of people they wanted to get rid of. Jesus was at the top of that list. He was the most infamous. And so John tells us here in chapter 12 that it's now six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover meal in which that very night after he goes away into the garden, he is arrested. And of course, we know of the trial the next day and then his crucifixion. So this is six days before all of that. And Jesus has come back to Bethany, Bethany across the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem, up over the Mount of Olives is the town of Bethany. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. And they're making him dinner. So in verse 2 says, so they made him supper. That's who they're talking about. They made him supper. They made him dinner. If you were to turn to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, it tells us that this is at the home of Simon the leper. So this is at a place where Mary and Martha and, and, and Lazarus all knew Simon the leper. Simon the leper was someone that Jesus had cured of his leprosy. And Matthew's gospel tells us that his disciples are there as well. So in the home, here is this meal happening. There's at least 11 people at this dinner. And John tells us Martha was serving. Martha was serving. By the way, serving is the simple word for deacon. She's deaconing. <gasps> A woman deaconing? Listen, I don't think he's setting forth an office here. He's just telling that's, that's, that's the word. That's service. It means servant. She's, she's being a servant. She's serving. And this is the important characteristic or one of them that I want to highlight this morning when it comes to true worshipers. This is the first characteristic that we need to learn about true worshipers. A true worshiper is one who gives themselves in sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. Martha was serving. You say, yes, she's serving. Yes, she's serving others. She's serving others. She's serving other people. She's serving Christ, yes. But she's serving others at the, in the, at, at the same time. So in serving others, she is worshiping Christ by her service. She's honoring Christ. She's highlighting Christ because it was of Him that she was serving. Remember what we know about Martha? This is what Martha seemed to always do. Martha was seemingly always serving in some way, but in the past, she wasn't serving with the right heart. She was serving in the past, but she was serving 
grumbling and complaining as she was doing her duty. But here in John chapter 12, it seems as if there's a change. Martha is now serving for the right reasons. The other account is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Martha's serving, but Martha's complaining that Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet. Why don't you tell her to come and help serve with me? I'm serving, I'm doing what I do, but I'm doing it out of duty. That's what Martha always seemed to do. And she's angry when others didn't help. And Jesus rebukes her. Jesus rebukes her in a soft, gentle way, even after she rebukes Jesus. Think of that. Lord, why don't you tell her to help me? Look, Lord, get on the business. Look at I'm doing what I should do. Why doesn't she start doing what she's supposed to do? That's not a heart of worship. But here in John 10 or in John 12, Martha's different. Her heart is different. Well, what happened? Her brother was raised from the dead. She had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Martha, don't you believe? Don't you believe who I am? I am the resurrection and the life. There is a change in the heart of Martha. Her encounter with Christ before he had raised Lazarus from the dead had changed her life. And I believe she understood that she could do what God equipped her to do. And yet do it for the right reasons as worship to Christ. You notice in this text, she doesn't complain about Mary at all. She doesn't complain about Mary sitting there. We'll talk about Mary in a minute, but she doesn't complain about him. She just serves. It just says simply that Martha is serving. And I think it's highlighting the reality that Martha is serving without grumbling and complaining. She's not doing what she normally did. Martha understood that the worship of Christ was seen through her service because of Christ. Her preparing a meal with the right attitude was worship. I I don't think we can miss that point here, beloved. Engaging in spiritual service is worship. Engaging in spiritual service is following through with what we are exhorted to do in Romans chapter 12. It is our reasonable service of worship. Not because we gain something, not because it's duty in us, but because we acknowledge what God has done for us and thereby God has gifted us to do what we're doing. He's gifted us not only in the spiritual realm, but He's also equipped us in the physical realm so that we might use those gifts for His glory. So we might use those gifts in worship to Him. And so when we are serving others, simply because Christ has equipped us to do so, it glorifies Christ, and that is worship. That's worship. Whatever it is we do, Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, we are to do it to the glory of God. It really doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how mundane the task or how we might see it as a highlighted thing. The fact of the matter is we are to do it under the glory of God. That means that God is to be reflected in all that we do. The very character and nature of God is to be reflected in what it is we do. So it doesn't matter whether we're fixing a meal, whether we're washing clothes, whether we're helping someone with some task around their house, whatever it is you and I do, whether we're formally teaching a class, it doesn't really matter what it is. The fact of the matter is we are worshiping when it is unto the glory of Christ. I was reading years ago about Catherine Booth. Catherine Booth was the wife of the founder of Salvation Army. Of course, we all are familiar with the Salvation Army today and all the philanthropic things that they do, but it was originally founded on Christian principles. I think it was founded with good thoughts and hearts behind it. Well, it was written about 
She was written about by her son and her son said this about her quote. She began her public ministry when I was about five years old. I resonated with that. She said, but her, he said, but her home was never neglected for what some would call quote, the large sphere. Both alike, the small and the large had been opened to her by God. And she saw his purposes in both. In the humble duties of the kitchen table, her hands busy with the food, or in the nursery when the children were going to bed, or at the bedside of a sick child, she was working for God's glory, unquote. What a testimony. What a testimony of a Psalm 31, right? Her children will call her blessed. I think this was Martha. Martha understands what it is to worship and serve God, whatever he has gifted her with. And that, I think, is the transcending point in just thinking about Martha when we think about our own lives. Loving service, loving service is always the characteristic of those who have had their charts changed by Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Loving service is always the characteristic of the heart of those who have been changed by Jesus Christ. True disciples worship through service. There's a second principle I think we find here in this text from about true disciples and worship, and that is true disciples worship through fellowship. Through fellowship. Notice what John says, verse 2, Martha is serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Martha's serving, but Lazarus is sitting with Jesus. And this is the second principle about true worship. They are continually in communion with Christ and desiring to be with the people of Christ. you realize we don't know a whole lot about Lazarus in the scriptures. The scriptures don't elaborate on his life previously. They don't tell us much about who Lazarus was as he grew up or any of those kind of things, the heritage. All we know is Lazarus from the fact that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. And yet, from what the gospel writers tell us, What we do know about Lazarus is that he was in communion with Christ and he loved to be with the true followers of Christ. I think when I think about the evangelical church over the last 50 plus years, this aspect of worship surprises me most of all. Because I think about what is it that keeps professing Christians from the fellowship of other believers? What is it that keeps Christians from being with other Christians? Is it recreation? Is that what it is? You decide and recreation takes its place in your life, your hobbies or whatever it is. And and so you do that much more, if not to the extent in which it keeps you from fellowship with others. Maybe it's just that we schedule our, 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 our schedules are so loaded by our own self-imposed busyness that we no longer have time for God and His people. In other words, we've just scheduled God right out of our life. He only fits where it's convenient. In other words, it's as if God's calling us to make an appointment and we're checking our schedule to see if there's time for it. What is it that motivates those who proclaim to know Jesus Christ to forsake the body of Christ, his church? As Hebrews 10 says, why is it so difficult for people to come and be with God's people as we commune together in his word? Why is it oftentimes so self-imposedly difficult? I understand there are times. I understand there are things. I understand through God's providence and care and circumstances, there are, there are reasons for why we aren't with one another from time to time. But when it becomes a pattern of life, we have to ask some serious questions. Because true disciples love to get together with God's people. 
Why? Because they're like-minded. Because they enjoy the spiritual relief that comes through the ministry of being together. They enjoy iron sharpening iron. They enjoy what they receive from the giftedness of others and others receive from them. They're not simply together because they delight in the occasion, in the moment, in that event, if you will, but rather because they're true believers and they ought to delight in the challenge. They ought to delight in the encouragement that comes from interacting on spiritual matters. I think we've lost this to a great extent in our Christian society. Lazarus was a true worshiper through fellowship. He had been dead, but now he's alive again. Let's not miss that reality. While that was true of Lazarus in his physical life, it's certainly true of all of us who truly know Jesus Christ spiritually, is it not? We were dead. We've been made alive. We've been made alive again by Christ, in Christ, and it is our great privilege to worship God through fellowship with others who are alive. Why? Why do we like to hang out with the dead? One man said it this way, quote, it takes two to fellowship. One speaks, the other responds. We have fellowship with Him when we get before Him and learn from His Word, and He speaks to us. And we fellowship when we challenge each other through the same word. Unquote. It's true. It's true. It takes two to fellowship. You cannot fellowship isolated by yourself. There is no fellowship that happens. True worshipers worship through service. And they worship through fellowship. There's a third principle here. The third principle is this. True worshipers worship through total sacrifice. Total sacrifice. Notice what it says about Mary in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Mary took some perfume, broke the vial, and poured it on Jesus' feet. What does that say, though, if, about her worship? What does that say about her sacrifice? What does that say about what it cost Mary to do that for Jesus? Well, number one, it says this, that her sacrifice was extremely costly. Extremely costly, because this was perfume, but it wasn't just any perfume. It was, when it says pure nard, that, that's a the, the understanding of that terminology is from a, a rare plant in India, native to only India. So it was imported. This is an imported, highly expensive perfume, rare perfume. It was costly. In fact, according to the words of Judas a little bit later, it seems to have been worth at least three years' salary I don't know what that would be for you, but that's an exorbitant amount of money. But to Mary, that wasn't even important. It wasn't even important. Why? Because nothing mattered in comparison to Christ. Nothing mattered by way of sacrifice when it came to Christ. Her most treasured possession was not something material. It was not something she held to. It was not something she had in the home. It was not something she possessed. Her greatest possession was Christ himself. So to Mary, perfume perfume may have been important. It may have been part of her life. She had a pound of very costly perfume. It was something in her life that she had at least in some way saved for years. She had squirreled away whatever it took for her to get enough so that she could have this very possession. But it was Christ that was most important. You see, compare her to Martha. Martha, for Martha, it doesn't appear to at least that perfume was important at all. It wasn't what she 
always was doing. It wasn't what, 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 what drove her. What drove Martha was the fact that she was, she was busy about doing whatever activity it was. This is what she did. It was her work. That was what mattered to Martha. And so Martha's sacrifice wasn't perfume. It wasn't some costly material good. Martha's sacrifice was the fact of her own, her own effort, her own abilities, her own perspiration, if you will. But to Christ, they both are valuable. Each sacrifice cost him something. And I guess that's, that's what we need to understand. That's the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifice costs. Sacrifice is not budget. That's not giving out of budget. That's, that's, sacrifice is cost. It's the very words that King David said to Samuel in, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In order to sacrifice that which is of value, we have to let it go. It has to be something we, we have that we have to let go. If you're like me, having been in and around the church more some 50 years, having been saved for 25 plus years, the more I carry on in my Christian life, the more I realize how much I'm holding on to. How much stuff is precious to me rather than Christ. What's value to you? What is it that you value most? For some of us, it's our monetary things, money that we have, however big that pile or small that pile may be. We do everything we can to maintain it at a certain level because if it ever goes before a certain level, we start to get anxious about life and we're wondering how we're going to take care of ourselves and oh, what's going to happen with us? And maybe like with our own time, we've budgeted God into our very economics rather than sacrificing. For some of us, it might just be our position, our reputation, the things that we would have, what it is we love by means of what it is we have. Maybe it's that that we love, unwilling to sacrifice, we're holding on to it so tightly. See, see, the question isn't for us, should I have it? That's not the question. We've been given so much by God. What a blessing that God has bestowed upon us. All these things, every good gift comes from the Father above, right? It's, it's all from God. So that's not the issue. Should we have it? The question is, am I willing to give it up simply because Christ is of greater value? Will I make it available for Jesus Christ to use? That's the question. In fact, Jesus got pretty pointed in Luke chapter 14 when it comes to discipleship. Right? None of us like tests, and Jesus was very fond of tests. Test yourself. Here's what he said about value. Great multitudes are following along with him in verse 25 of Luke 14, and he turns to them, he says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and his own mother and his own wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his low own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, right out of the gate, says, here's relationships, here's the most cherished relationships of your life, and even those can't be a higher value to you than I am to you. I must be the highest of value in your life, or you can't be my disciple. There is a cost. It's a sacrificial cost. It's an everything cost. And then he says, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, the relationships are, are, are the highest thing. Okay, I got to set those. I got I to have Christ uh, as of more value than that in my heart and mind. I can't hold so tightly to those. I got to hold them with, a, with an open hand in case God wants to change that. And, and also even my own life. I can't even hold my own life in such a way 
That's to be a greater value than my relationship with Christ. I have to be willing to say, okay, Lord, whatever. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost? See if he has enough to complete it. Or even someone who, who is going to war with somebody else and considers the battle and he goes, okay, do I have enough to win the battle? I got I to gotta calculate that thing. I got to count the cost. Is, it, is the value there? So therefore, no one can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That mean you have to go home, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and just sit around and, uh, contemplating your navel like a monk in the field? No. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, how tightly do you hold all that? Because true disciples worship me. And the worship of me means you don't hold tightly to those things. I'm of more value than any of those kinds of things. You see, beloved, Mary is an example of all of that to us. She's an example of that to us and what it means to worship God by giving Him our best. Not only was her sacrifice costly, but it was costly to her in a personal way, just like Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. This is a cost to her personally. John says that Mary wiped his feet with her hair. Now, if you understand the ancient Middle East in any kind of way, you know that a woman's hair was her glory. This is what she identified her. This is who she was. But Mary takes what what took a long time to even accumulate in this perfume, and she does what a woman would not do. She humbly bows, and by way of action to Christ, she says, not only can you have my possessions, but you can have me. You can have me. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't stop her. Jesus didn't even say, whoa, 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 hold on there, lady. Listen, don't you know? The Old Testament says worship God and Him only. Jesus didn't stop the worship. He didn't stop her from bowing down. He lets her go. Why? Because He's God, that's why. God demands our worship. He doesn't suggest it. He demands it. He commands it. Our worship is seen when we serve It is seen when we fellowship. It is seen when we are totally abandoned to God in sacrifice. That's true worshipers. And in a real way, in a real sense, the perfume that was busted and poured out, the fragrance fills the room. And I think that not only is realistic in the sense of what took place, but there's some sense of metaphor there for us and the sacrifice for Christ and how the Others, so many others are blessed when we just worship and serve Christ as He called us to. We're like the perfume in many ways. The fragrance fills the room. Others see Christ in us, they begin to think of Christ. That's not the false disciples. That's not false worshipers. They have no concept of what worship means. Notice what he says in verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was the perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, of course, we have the commentary there in verse 7. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was in it. That pilfer means lift out. He used to take it. He used to rob the money box of money. Oftentimes a question comes to our mind. We read a text like this. Had Jesus forgotten about the poor? I mean, had Jesus really forgotten? Was he being insensitive to the poor? Well, we certainly couldn't accuse God of that. God is certainly not treating the poor in a way that can can attach to him some kind of unrighteousness. He's not insensitive to them. No, those 
Listen, those who give their best for the sake of Christ will never forget those who are downtrodden. True worshipers won't forget those who are downtrodden. But Judas, because he's a false disciple, he, he doesn't understand that. He could never understand that. In fact, the only reason he mentions the poor at all is not because he's a true disciple and a true worshiper and wants to care for the poor. He's just caring for himself. He wants to pilfer out of the money box. He's a thief. He's out for one person and one person only, and that is himself. And so all he sees as Mary is doing what she's doing is waste. What a waste. What a waste. What a loss of gain for myself is what he's saying. That's the heart of a false worshiper. What am I going to get out of it? What's this going to gain for me? What can, what can I receive? Not what can I give. Not how can I spend myself for the sake of Christ. But if I come about, if I'm around, how can it be puffing me up? That's the false worshiper. Hey, look at me. Look at who I am. You see, Martha exemplifies self-service, or selfless service, I should say. She's not serving herself, she's serving Christ. Lazarus, he, he exemplifies selfless fellowship. And Mary exercised selfless sacrifice. But Judas, not Judas, it's all about self-service. It's all about me, about what I can get. Self-loving, unwilling to sacrifice anything. Why? Because that's the heart of somebody who's never been transformed. They worship on the outside only. And worship of Christ in any sacrificial kind of way seems to be impractical at best, and at worst, just a waste of time. Why would I do that? I get nothing from it. Notice what Jesus says. Leave her alone. Why? In order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you. You don't always have me. He said, listen. Listen, there's something much more important than anything on this earth sitting right here with you. There is no sacrifice too good. You always have the, the way. You always have the abilities. You always have the, the reality of, of caring for those who are less in a, in a position of less need or greater need than you. Well, there's coming a day when I'm not going to be here anymore. What Mary did, the sacrifice that was made was because of Christ's sacrifice for us. That's what Mary did because of what Christ sacrificed for her, because Christ was giving his life for her. And this is, what I, 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 this is why I went to this passage this morning. This is why I want us to look here when we come to the idea of communion and the reality of communion for us, because without the death of Christ, without Christ's sacrifice, all of our good deeds become just philanthropic activity. They just become charity. They just become duties of outward action, but have nothing to do with God. But through the death of Christ, our spiritual service then propels us to love our neighbor as ourself. Why? Because the love of Christ impels us because we love Christ more than anything. Because I love Christ, I'll sacrifice myself. Because I love Christ, I'll sacrifice my time and energies. Because I love Christ, I'll sacrifice what I have. Because of Christ, I'll do whatever I need to simply because Christ is so valuable to me. It's stunning, really. Verse 9 through 11, the multitudes, therefore, learned what that Jesus was there at Lazarus. They came. They didn't come for Jesus. Yeah, they wanted to see Jesus. He, he, was, he was the main act, but they, they really came for the second act. They wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see this guy whom he raised from the dead. They wanted to see the phenomenon. They didn't really come to serve Jesus, to, to honor Jesus in that kind of way. They just wanted to see, hey, was this really happening? 
Notice the chief priest's response. Chief priest took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death. <laughs> Lazarus now is guilty of the crime of living. How dare he breathe? They hated him because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. False worship. Martha was serving with all she had. Lazarus wanted to be with Christ and his people with all he had. So much so that the testimony of his very life, just the very breath of his mouth was enough to give him a second death sentence. And Mary was worshiping Christ through selfless sacrifice with all she had. Beloved, that's really the picture of what happens when Christ changes a life. It's what happens when, when the Holy Spirit enters into a person by faith in Jesus Christ, they become a worshiper. Christ, through the Holy, the Holy Spirit, makes us new and we become true worshipers. And so all of them give their best for Christ. And we know many saw Christ through it because that's what it says. They were going away. Many were believing. There's a question I have for us this morning and we'll just end with this. Can others, can others who see us, can others tell if we've been with Christ? Can others tell if we've been with Christ? Are we true worshipers? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for the accounting of this event in the life of your ministry. We thank you for the change that you brought about in the life of these whom we can call brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that they worshiped you for who you were, regardless of the cost of themselves. And Lord, I pray that that would be our heart this morning. We think about communion. We think about this time in the life of the church. Have we forgotten the sacrifice? Maybe we haven't forgotten. Maybe, maybe we've just neglected to remember. It's not as if it wasn't real. Maybe we've allowed the, the cares and the struggles of this world to so impact us that, we, that we've forgotten what it means to worship. Maybe the faith that we proclaim has been relegated to an exercise of our own will and our own activities rather than trusting in You. Lord, I pray that You would affect us by these things, that You would cause us to be greater instruments of Yours, that we would have a greater urgency of worship for You, that we would trust You in every way, willing to sacrifice whatever it is you have allowed us to have from our very lives themselves because you are of greater worth than anything. Thank you for this reminder this morning, Lord. Use it by your grace in our lives and for your glory that others would see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.